So later on tonight, the Kansas City Chiefs are going to play the San Francisco 49ers in Super Bowl 54. And a couple weeks ago, it did not look like Kansas City was going to be there at all because by the end of the first quarter, they were losing 24-0. And in order to win the game, they would have had to have... uh, they would have had to embarked on the largest comeback in NFL playoff history, which they ended up doing, and so they're playing in the Super Bowl this afternoon. But by the, by the end of that first quarter, the mascot was banging his head on the locker room door. Things looked pretty bad. Kansas City fans were freaking out. Droves of Kansas City fans were leaving the stadium. There was one guy, one fan who became famous, and... Uh, on Twitter, his Twitter handle is Big Buck Chuck, and Big Buck Chuck was so upset he thought to himself, "There's only one explanation for why this is happening. It's me. And like Jonah, I've got to get myself off of this ark, or this thing is going down." So he left the stadium, and then they won. Uh, Susan was watching the game with me. She took a little power nap. She woke up and she was like, "How long have I been asleep?" And I'm like, not that long, actually. It was a ridiculous comeback. Nobody expected it. But the bottom line is, uh, there's still time on the clock. Our text for today is Romans chapter 11. And as we've been working through Paul's letter to the Romans, we get to a chapter where Paul addresses the fact that things do not look good for the people of God. Droves of people of the people of God, the Jewish nation, have left the stadium. And it seems like the the argument could be levied that either God's power has failed or God's promise has failed or his inability to save has failed. And so Paul is anticipating all of these arguments there in the first century. And he's like, oh, hold on a second, big buck, Chuck. There's still time left on the clock. Romans chapter 11. This is such a rich and deep chapter. I have to just take excerpts. Many theologians and commentators will tell you it's layered and, and, and it's deep. And so I'm going to read some excerpts this morning, but I'd encourage you after hearing today's sermon to go back and read the chapter in its entirety so that you can begin to explore uh, some of the, the, the richness that we just don't have time uh, to get into uh, this morning to cover all of it. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 1. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Do you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and they've torn down your altars and I'm the only one left. And they're trying to kill me. And what is God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Verse 11. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. 
Israel was not ex- Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Oh, the depth of riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now before I dial into this chapter 11, let's just get some context as to why Paul would write this. Okay, so very, 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 very quickly. Previously on Romans. Chapter 1 through 8. What happens is he establishes that the brokenness and the suffering, oppression, injustice in all forms, this condition of of, of humanity, it's all on us. And therefore, the redemption from those things, that's got to be all God. That's Romans 1 through 8. Is him establishing the scandal of God's mercy, the scandal of God's undeserved grace, his great unrelenting cosmic patience that we can't fathom towards those who feel that's chapters 1 through 8 so when you get to chapter 9 through 11 Paul starts to use this strong sovereignty language I'm not going to re-preach the sermons from chapters 9 and 11 but you see the flow the logic of his thesis as he's unpacking how in the end God is going to accomplish his purposes and they will not be thwarted by man's rebellion and so what he does is in this Chapters 9 through 11, we find that God chooses and the gospel invites and grace sustains absolutely every one of God's children. God is not in the business of losing. And regardless of how it is, you unpack the nuances of the mystery between God's sovereignty and our responsibility because both are true. But regardless of how you unpack that, you cannot at the end of it come to the conclusion that God is like this awkward, nervous child in gym class sitting on the end of the bench going, please pick me, please pick me. Because if that's how you've arrived at your understanding of the God who saves, something went wrong in your theology. At the end of the day, it's not God sitting down on the end of the bench going, please pick me, please pick me. He's doing the choosing. And that is a front that, that, that offends and blows the paradigms of our modern concepts of God because we're much more comfortable with the God that we can sort of control. But then Romans 9 through 11, Paul is not um, erasing human responsibility. Paul is not erasing the fact that you and I wake up every day and make choices of our free will. Paul is shining a spotlight on God's free will. And saying, what does God choose to do with his free will? And the answer is, dole out scandalous levels of forgiveness, mercy, and grace. And so, the reason that you and I are sitting here today, and the tone of what Paul is trying to get to the Romans is, guys, the reason you're sitting in your little Roman church, don't get conceited about why you're there. Don't look out and say, where are all the Jews? It seems like this church is full of Greco-Romans. And don't get conceited and don't... Don't start to develop ethnic superiority because you're only here for one reason, grace. It was true for them and it's true for us. Us sitting in church today, it's a commentary, not on our great pursuit of God, but his scandalous pursuit of us. And so there's these big questions being asked in the first century that are just as relevant today in the 21st century. And the question is, the questions are, will God, what will God's response be to those who reject him? Will God eventually decide 
you know what, enough is enough. I'm just giving up on my children. Will God do that? Or will he continue to pursue his children? This is not a theological conundrum. This is a sinner's relief. Because the answer for us sinners is no, God will not relent relent from pursuing us. In his great love and his great grace, the answer is no. And just so you know, I'm going to give a little Greek lesson to the kids who are in here, okay? You know how when you say no, there's varying levels of no? Explain it this way. Do you like broccoli? No. Do you like Brussels sprouts? No. Do you like doing homework? No. Hey, do you want to go to summer school? No! Okay, do you understand? You see how there's levels? Right? Adults have these levels too, right? Do you like broccoli? No. Do you think uh, human trafficking is moral? What? No! Why would you even say that? See that? In the Greek language, what Paul does is when he answers this question, Greek scholars will tell you that the word that he uses, ginomai, in the Greek, it's the strongest language available to him. To say, let me just explain to you the answer of, is God going to just turn his back on people who turn, on his children, his covenant children is going to turn his back? The answer is absolutely he will not. He will never cease to relent to pursue them. And so we find that actually in chapter 10 leading up to this, where the apostle quotes the prophet that says, God stood with his arms out all day long. And by all day long, he means millennia of continually, continually inviting, inviting, inviting the rebellious ones to return to him. You know, I'm often asked, preachers get asked all the time, they're like, I got a a friend named Frank. And they tell you Frank's story. And he loved Jesus and he was baptized and now he's crazy and he's running off and and he hates the church. And is Frank saved? Everybody wants preachers to weigh in on it. I got this kid and right now, are they saved? It's not, I'm not, so the short, quick, easy answer for me is, I'm not God, so why are you asking me the question? That's the simplest answer. But if I don't want to just use the get out of escape, you know, get out of jail, get out of answering the question card, and say, I'm not God, don't ask me the question. I have to appeal to the text, which says to me, now, hold on a second. God has never been in the business of giving up on rebellious people. If I look at the text, what do I find? God specializes in constantly pursuing rebellious people. God has a track record of continually handing his, holding his hands out in grace to rebellious people, to his children who've been given the sign of his covenant. This is what we see. The, the New Testament has strong warnings against people who go through religious motions, but they never ever trust in Christ. But you're, you'll find lots of warnings saying, hey church, if you're here part of KW Redeemer and you're just going through religious motions, but you don't really trust in Christ, you need to trust in Christ. There, you'll find those kind of warnings. But th- what you don't find is, hey, church, you better be careful because you might be just let go out of the grip of Christ. That, you better be careful the way you live because if you live the wrong way, Jesus just lets right go of you. He says, this, all bets are off. You do not find that. You find that God's gracious sovereignty cannot be thwarted by our rebellion over and over and over and over, his great and saving grace. So let's look at three things this morning from this text. The first one is a defense of God's faithfulness towards Israel. The second thing is the implications of God's grace in the early church. And then the third thing is living out these implications of God's grace here in this church. So firstly, a defense of his faithfulness towards Israel. God's chosen people, the Jews... They were a, the, God's chosen people were a picture 
of all people. When you think about when God chose his people, they were in desperate need of his grace. They were in desperate need of saving. They weren't at the top. They were at the bottom. They were in slavery in Egypt, incapable of saving themselves, and on their way to the grave in Egypt. And so God chooses them in that condition as a picture of our global condition. God chooses them, loves them, not because God had cosmic sense of ethnic superiority and said, I like this people group better than the rest of the people groups. He says, I'm going to choose this people group, put my love and favor and grace on this people group to show the radicality of my power and my saving grace to every other people group. It was an, evang- it was an evangelism uh, situation. And so some have levied these arguments against the New Testament or the scriptures. They said, well, the New Testament is anti-Semitic. It is absolutely not anti-Semitic because we've got scriptures that are Jewish. We've got a savior who is Jewish. And then we've got the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament who is Jewish. And so these are poor arguments. Some people raise them. And perhaps you've had the unfortunate experience of meeting someone who claims to be a Christian who is anti-Semitic. But that's a commentary on their uh, ignorance. It's not a commentary on the grace of God and his scriptures. And so what we find is God never ceased to pursue in grace the children of Israel. There's a book in the Old Testament called Hosea. You pronounce that in uh, Hebrew, Yeshua. That's how Hosea is pronounced. It's our English translation version of Yeshua. You pronounce it that way. That was the name of Jesus. And what did God ask Hosea to do? You find, he says, I want to show these people who I keep chasing with grace what it feels like to be in a relationship with them. Hey, Hosea, marry a prostitute. So Yeshua marries a prostitute. You follow this? Jesus marries a prostitute. To make that translation of the, 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 that Old Testament uh, name. And so here he is trying to be faithful to this woman who's continually going to the city. And he, through tears, he's chasing her down and chasing her down and chasing her down. God says, this is what it feels like to love you and to have you continually forsake me and go and play the harlot with everything else that you'd rather orbit your life around. God has never ceased to pursue his children. And so as the, as the first century church looks around and they say, you know what? Most of us are Romans. Most of us are Greeks. There are not a lot of Jews here. Has God forsaken his chosen people? And the answer is absolutely, emphatically, absolutely no, it is not. In verse 1, Paul says, I'm a Jew. And then he flexes on his heritage. He doesn't say, I'm a Jew, and he moves on. He says, from the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of Abraham. In other words, he's like, Rome, don't get arrogant about why you're in church. God has not forsaken his people. If you go to Ancestry.com, if it were a thing, and you just keep on going back, guess who you're going to find in my family lineage at the beginning? Abraham. That's where I came from. So Paul is flexing on saying, hold on a second. What do you mean God's forsaken his people? I'm standing here. I wasn't seeking Jesus. I was persecuting Jesus. I didn't believe in the message of Jesus. I was throwing people in jail who believed in Jesus. And I was knocked off my high horse by Jesus and saved by Jesus. And in reality, all of us are knocked off of our high horses by Jesus and saved by Jesus. And that's why all of us are in church. We were orbiting our life or on a path or a trajectory headed somewhere else when we were saved by God's great grace. And so 
Paul starts out with this. He says, I am proof that God does not reject and throw away his rebellious children. Right? God, in his scandal of grace, he makes Paul the most unlikely first century draft pick. And he puts him on the first string and he has him write two-thirds of the New Testament. And God's choosing is not new. This idea of God choosing and his sovereign grace and him thwarting man's rebellion and saving us out of our incessant trajectory to run away from God. This is not new to Romans. God has a long track record of of choosing deeply flawed and sinful people because deeply flawed and sinful people are the only kind there are. And maybe you're hearing you say, I don't think I like that very much. I don't think I'm a very deeply flawed, sinful person. Well, being unaware that you're deeply flawed is deeply flawed. So all of us are in need of God's great grace. He's been, he's been doing this from the beginning. He chose Noah, even though he needed his grace as much as anyone else. He chose Abraham before he lied so that he could save his own skin and say that he wasn't married to his wife. Twice. And he chose Moses before his anger drove him to, drove him to misrepresent the heart of God and disobey God and disqualify himself from going to the promised land. And he chose David before David abused his power took advantage of a married woman who could not reject him because he was the king and she had no power. And then he got her pregnant and then he killed her husband. He chose David before he did any of these things. He chose Rahab before she put on a red dress to work the night shift in Jericho. He chose Jonah before he got a little bit racist against the Ninevites and said, this people group right here should not be saved. God, I'm happy to preach to all these other cultures, but not that one. They can go straight to hell. He chose that guy. He chose 12 uneducated fishermen to be messengers of his grace. He chose Mary Magdalene, who was demon-possessed, to be one of the very first witnesses. She was one of the first evangelists of the resurrection. And then he chose Paul, a zealot who persecuted the church by God's grace. And he chose you, and he chose me. God's been choosing for a long time by his great grace. He's got this glorious track record of saving people. And in verse 6, we find that the salvation is ultimately this trust transfer. It's of grace and not works. Israel sought righteousness passionately, but they were passionately wrong because they rejected Christ as their righteousness and they trust in their law-keeping for their righteousness. And if you're new to the scriptures this morning, the gospel announces that you're accepted by God based on Christ's substitution. And that's going to offend you if your religious paradigm has you believing that you're saved based on your moral contribution. And that is why these first century Jews could not accept and could not grapple with this message of the grace of Jesus Christ. Because for centuries, their priests were wrongly telling them not to trust in the God of salvation, but to trust in their law-keeping for salvation. And so they couldn't grapple with the scandal of the grace of Jesus. When you get to verse 11, he says, have they fall- Has Israel fallen beyond recovery? Absolutely no, they have not. It's an emphatic no. And then he begins to unpack, as you read the rest of chapter 11, how God used Israel's rejection of the gospel to extend his grace from one culture to every culture. Which leads to the second thing, the implications of God's grace in the early church. See, God used what appeared to be totally broken. There's a Baptist preacher, and his name is Charlie Dates. And he tells this story about helping his grandmother 
water her garden. And she takes a bucket of water, gives him a bucket of water, and they would always walk to this garden. And when they would get there, he had hardly any water left in his bucket because it had a crack in it, and it dribbled all the way to the garden, and they'd water the garden. And she kept doing this every time he visited his grandmother. She'd do this, and she always gave him the bucket with the crack in it. And so one day, she asked him, hey, let's go water the garden. And he goes, no! He's a little kid. He doesn't sound like that as an adult, obviously. I mean, there are some adults, but anyways. Um, so... He says, no. And she says, Charlie, why won't you help me? He says, every time I get to the garden, there's hardly any water left in my bucket. And she goes, oh, let me show you something. And she says, look at, what do you see on the side of the path where you walked? And he's like, well, there's some flowers. And she goes, yeah. Um, because I knew there was a crack in your bucket. And I always gave it to you so you would walk along the whole path on this side. And it would water, all the, water the flowers all along the way. I knew, I knew the bucket was cracked, but I wanted to use the bucket anyways. God has always been in the business of using cracked buckets. Israel, for millennia, was a cracked vessel. God chose to use the cracked vessel to get all of those from outside of that one particular ethnicity, from multiple ethnicities and cultures, to come to the saving faith in Jesus Christ. God used what was broken. God has always used what's broken. God continues to use what is broken. And so... Throughout Acts, as the, when you read the book of Acts and you see the gospel being preached in the synagogues, some Jews believed, some rejected. And it was the rejection that prompted the Jewish Christians to share the gospel outside the context of their own culture. And that's how it spread to other cultures. Just imagine for a moment, had all of the Jews believed... It would have remained within that ethnicity. It would have probably been viewed by the Greco-Roman world as some sort of a revival within the Jewish community. And so, first century Christianity, it included Israel. It extended beyond ethnic Israel. And what that reveals is that all who trust in Christ are what the New Testament calls true Israel. Because God's goal from the beginning was that his family was not simply from one ethnicity, but from, from every ethnicity. And so when you become a Christian, you don't give up your cultural distinction. When you become a Christian, you don't give up your, the, the beautiful uh, expressions of your culture they, and become sort of a homogenous Christian culture. There is no such thing as a homogenous Christian culture. God's grace renews and reorients and beautifies your cultural expression. So that the people of God are mosaic of cultural expression. Worshiping God in beautiful and diverse ways. There is a diversity and yet a unity. And so Jesus, the great high priest, he succeeded where the high priests failed. Because the high priests were supposed to be conduits of God's grace to the nations. And instead, they circled their religious wagons and they related to everybody with self-righteous superiority and actually burdened the people within their own nation. And so this whole text in Romans 11 it actually points to a huge overarching theme in Scripture of exile and homecoming. Because God has a promise of a people and a land. And as you unfold the Scriptures, you discover that God's promise is bigger than everybody first thought. God's promise of a people, it began with the Jewish nation. It includes the Jewish nation. But it expands to every nation. God's promise of a land... The land that God has promised is much greater than a small patch in the Middle East. The land 
as you read the book of Revelation, is the earth that God is restoring and giving his, to his people. That every tongue and every tribe and every nation will glorify God. God will be their God. They will be his people celebrating him in the land, which is the earth. And so it's this promise that's bigger than anybody could have ever imagined or thought. The Christian life, <coughs> being a child of God, it's a life of exile. And we're headed toward an incredible homecoming. All of us are exiles. Living our life day to day with the great certainty and hope of the homecoming, which actually empowers the life that we live day to day with great peace and uh, a desire to be a blessing to the city. In verse 11, it says that the Gentiles were to make Israel envious. And normally, the word envious is negative. Here, the way that Paul is using it, that the Gentiles were to make Israel envious, what he is saying is it's, he's giving the image of seeing beauty and liberation and freedom and rest and wanting that in your life. That's a good thing. It's desiring something beautiful and good. And so this is what he's getting at. It gives us a powerful insight. If God was able to work through the unbelief of the Jews to get his mercy on the Gentiles, then surely he can work through the belief of the Gentiles to get his mercy back to the Jews. You see, God is just continually holding his hand out to his people. And to illustrate this, chapter 11 and other places in the New Testament, it gives us a horticulture lesson. It talks about grafting, grafting in new branches. Now, why does the Bible give us this horticulture lesson? Uh, there's a theologian, New Testament scholar, William Ramsey. He describes it like this, the purpose for this imagery is that when you have an olive tree and it's not producing fruit anymore, they would cut a branch off and graft in a wild olive branch. And that foreign branch would kickstart the system and the whole tree would produce fruit again. And so what Paul is saying is the, the tree stopped producing fruit. And so God has grafted in, God used those who would reject him to graft in others to kickstart the process of his grace and his mercy and his renewal again. And so that over time and continually until the return of our Lord, the text says all Israel will be saved. All not meaning like our modern English reading of the word means all means all, every single individual. But all meaning, in the, it's a Jewish idiom meaning the whole or the totality. In other words, everybody from Israel and outside the nation of Israel, everybody who God intends to draw to his saving grace will be saved. God is not in the business of losing. He will accomplish his purpose. Our rebellion will not thwart it. His grace is too good. His mercy is too good. And so let's, you know, recognize that the divine gardener, he knows what he's doing, which leads to the third and final thing, living out the implications of God's grace in this church. You see, this passage it showcases God's determination in the face of human rebellion. So let's stop talking about Israel's rebellion. And let's start thinking about ours. Because all of us go through uh, struggles and uh, failures with rebellion. And the question is, will God stop being faithful to you when you prove that you are unfaithful to him? No, he will not. Will God stop being faithful to your children who have been baptized, given the sign of the covenant, profess their faith in Christ, and then go off and live a, a, a and reject God. Will God just say, well, all bets are off. 
You turn your back on me, I turn my back on you. That's how this thing works. The answer is no. The answer is, hold on, big, big buck chuck, there's still time on the clock. So stop deciding for your neighbors and your children who's in and who's out, because you're not God. But rather, let us turn to prayer and care, and let us desire to humbly share the goodness of the rest that we enjoy in Christ, and never cease to love. May God give us patience, because He operates with scandalous levels of patience. It's not for us to decide and who's a gospel write-off. Because God does not turn his back. God will hold his hands out to his children until their dying breath. He will hold his hands out. He held his hands out to Israel for millennia. He will hold his hands out to you. He will hold his hands out to your children. He will hold his hands out until your dying breath. He will not say all bets are off because of his covenant grace. The scandalous, unfathomable levels of his mercy. This is what he has promised to do. This is what Paul is getting at. This is why Paul is saying, hold up Rome. Don't get too excited about why you think you're sitting there. Because from millennia past, God in his great grace has moved 10,000 things so that you could be sitting here. If you're here this morning and you've not yet placed your faith in Christ, you're here, tomorrow, you're here this morning, of course, because you got up, got dressed, and drove here of your own free will. And you're also here because God has free will. And he moved 10,000 things in your life so that you would be here to hear of the goodness of his love and his grace and his mercy for you. And so this is the assurance that we have. And, you know, if you're preaching grace properly, somebody will always worry that you're a bit of an antinomian. So that's why I'm unapologetically saying what Paul said. No, he will not relent. This is the assurance we have in Christ. Assurance is not arrogance, and assurance is not indifference. See, the New Testament warns against arrogant indifference. But the New Testament doesn't go, eh, about assurance. You see, assurance is knowing you're saved by Christ, period, full stop. Arrogant indifference makes a mockery of the Lordship of Christ. Assurance is knowing you're saved by Christ's perfection and not your progress. Assurance is saying, I receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, and on that basis, He will save me despite my failure. Indifference says, oh, I like the idea of Jesus as Savior. I'm not up for Him as Lord. That's indifference. And the New Testament warns us against that. Assurance is knowing that you're saved even though you still sin, which starting with this preacher, everybody in this room still does. Assurance is knowing we're saved even though we still sin. Arrogance is intentionally living, fully committed to our sin. And the New Testament warns against that. And you may say, well, then where's the motivation? Where's the motivation to live to the glory of God? If by His great grace He's going to save us. Here's the motivation. I'll explain it to you this way as I close. My son Isaiah, when he was a little younger, there was this basketball net across the street, and he always go over and slam dunk on it because it was the, the neighbors had lowered it down. And I said to him, don't dunk on the net because it might come down. You might break it. Then he kept dunking on the net, and it came down, and he broke it. And after he broke it, he came home, and he was crying. He was upset. I broke the net. Dad, oh, you told me so many times not to do it. I did it. I broke it. The thing is destroyed. 
I said, well, you got to go tell the neighbors that you broke it. So he goes over and he tells them that he broke it. And when the neighbors gave it to him, they said, well, that's okay. We didn't use it that much. You can have it. You can fix it and have it. They gave it. He broke it and they gave it to him. He brought it home and I fixed it and I put it up in front of our house. Something that he did not deserve, that he was given by the scandal of grace. And I fixed it and I put it up and I said... Don't dunk on the net. And he never dunked on the net again. What was the motivation? The crushing law? The crushing fear of penalty? No, the motivation was he had, was a recipient of scandalous grace. He had been given a gift of scandalous grace. And he was like, why would I destroy this scandalous grace? That is the motivation for the Christian who knows that Christ is enough and that we are wrapped in him. We're like, why would I dunk on this and wreck it when I've been given this glorious grace? Yes, I'm going to live to the glory of my Savior. And even though I may fall all over myself, I will repent and I will get up and I will desire to live to his glory again. These are the implications of God's absolute goodness towards us. It's to encourage us to resist sitting on a self-righteous throne, looking at certain people in our lives, looking at certain ethnic groups or socioeconomic groups, and and deciding, based on our observation, their gospel write-offs. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's saving grace, and our observations about people's lives, the conditions of their lives, their current behavior, our observations are too limited to be an analysis of God's sovereignty. Relax, big buck Chuck, there's time on the clock. In verses 2 through 4, Paul reminds us of Elijah's complaint. And as I close the sermon, I know this is my second closing, but whatever. This is Elijah's complaint, and may this not become our complaint. Elijah's complaint was, he looks around at the people of God, and in droves it seems like they're all leaving the stadium, and Elijah says, I'm the only one. I'm the only one who's faithful. And what is God's response to that? God doesn't say, yeah, my bad. I was asleep at the salvation switch. Thanks for drawing that to my attention, Elijah. I'm really not doing a very good job in this nation, am I? Thank you for your human analysis of my divine sovereignty. I'll now kick it into gear because you've drawn it to my attention not doing a good job. It doesn't sound anything like that. Elijah says, I'm the only one. And God goes, hold on, big buck Chuck. I got 7,000 other people, which is a metaphorical number, the perfect number of God, meaning I've got an innumerable number. I've got a remnant. I've got something that's beyond your pay grade to understand of people who have not bowed their knee to Baal. That was God's response. The Christians have been saying, it seems like I'm the only one passionate about this since 850 BC. Am I the only one talking about this? No. Am I the only one? It seems like oh, nobody's talking about it. The church isn't talking about it. What, how, do you know when you're a preacher, you get to hear it all the time. Why is the church not talking? Relax, big buck Chuck. The church is talking. There's people. You're not the only one. Why am I the only one talking about the poor or caring for refugees 
or how the church should be more loving and gracious towards the LGBTQ community. Why am I the only one talking about this? Why am I the only one that says you've got, you, we, we've got to be able to be, uh, keep our theological and scriptural convictions and love those who don't share them? Why am I the only one that's talking about this? Why am I the only one talking about doctrine and the importance of it or evangelism or financial stewardship? Why am I the only one that's talking about You're not. You're not. Relax. You're not sovereign. God is sovereign. Your humble boldness to do mission in this city will greatly accelerate when you relax in the greatness of God's sovereignty, recognize how small you are, and just from love and grace and wonder and amazement that He has saved you, share the good news of the gospel for others. And so regardless of our observations of admittedly the dismal gospel landscape here in Canada, God is not asleep at salvation's switch. He absolutely is not. He is constantly holding out his arms. So may we, according to Paul's encouragement to this church in Rome, may we not relate to the struggling, faltering, wandering Christians with self-righteous superiority. May God soften our hearts so that we can continually relate to them with love and humility. May we not sit in judgment about whether or not we think they are truly saved. And may we pray that God would continually pursue them as He has pursued us with His scandalous grace because it is only by the Holy Spirit that their hearts will be turned and that they will be saved. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them for him and through him and from him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.